This is RDQI. think that a personality test or personality tests can accurately describe a human being? No. No way. I could give you an idea about who that person is, maybe, but com- completely describe? Absolutely not. I don't think so. How about you? Um, I, so I'll be honest. I... I I did up until doing the research for this question. <laughs> um, sure. And I started started you know looking into the uh, the detractors for the various um, personality tests and realizing ah okay you bring up some pretty good points. These are overly simplistic in in terms of quantifying a human being, right? Um, you know, you and I have you and I have talked before a little bit about. Um, artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, which we, I think we should, we can get into a little bit later on, but sure. mm-hmm. you know, the, the fact of the thesis statement with the current state of AI technology is that it doesn't exist because it is so unbelievably difficult, um, to describe the entirety of of a human mind, right? We, we 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 don't really understand it. We certainly can't replicate it with technology. We can, you know, we can do some very very cool things. Sure. Um, oh yeah. But can replicate a human mind? No. <laughs> right. Is it is it artificial so intelligence? We, nah, no. It's just really smart computers linked together in a clever way. So far, that's all we've got. I think. I think that's what you're saying, right? Yeah, right. Um, you know, so so if we can't if we can't replicate a human mind, then how is a simple little you know fifty question personality <laughs> test going to be able to explain a human mind? That being said, though, I I have always been really interested in personality tests and aptitude tests and and things like that. I do think they serve. Uh, a purpose in helping you to understand yourself and others, mm-hmm. not comprehensively. And that I think is the caveat. Um, but I do find them useful. I, I find them really useful. Um, it, you know, a little bit different than a personality test, but I know you and I have both taken aptitude tests before. Sure. And mm-hmm. while it is a, probably, I mean, I'm sure it's overly simplistic. It did really help me kind of understand the things that make me tick and the things that I enjoy versus the things that I would, I, I struggle against. Um, I, so I, I guess I would, I would pose this question to you. I know, I know you've taken these tests. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And your, your answer was an adamant no, but do you find any value in them or do you think that they are, are dangerous because they're overly simplistic. Uh, I don't know that they're dangerous. I think they can be misused. Um, as far as, and I think it, this is even funny. I think most people call them inventories and not tests. 
you know, in the sense like you can't be wrong about being yourself, you know, so you can inventory <laughs> the various assets you have from a psychological standpoint or something like that. I don't know. I'm being pedantic, I guess. But there is a there is a difference, I think, there. And I've taken a lot of them. I mean, um, the last company I was working with full time, uh, it was a pre it was a requirement in, in um, the job interview process. So. Um, and it was even interesting to kind of see because I was being hired by a small company that was being acquired by a big company. So I interviewed with the small company and they basically gave me the green light and wanted to bring me on. And then apparently I had to interview with the big company. And this was all news to me um, during the interview process. And it was interesting because I took a, an inventory, a, a test, if you will. Um, the DISC assessment is what it's called. And I'm sure I'll talk about it a little bit later, too. Um, Because it is interesting. It's really quite fascinating. But um, so I took that assessment. And when I talked to the recruiter from the big company, they're like, so normally we wouldn't hire someone like you for this position based on, you know, the DISC assessment we had. But because, you know, the, the president of this company really wants you on, like we're willing to look the other way sort of thing. And I thought that was so odd. Like, it didn't make any sense to me at the time, especially because I didn't understand what the DISC assessment was and what its use case was. So I was just kind of blown away. Like, and at the time I was like, look, I don't care. Like, the, this company wants to hire me. Like, can you just send me the paperwork, please? You know? Um, and two, two and a half years later, I can see why, um, based on my DISC profile, why they're like, yeah, you probably wouldn't be a great fit for this particular role. And I think there is some value there because I think, you know, it, it did, I did learn a lot about myself through this uh, inventory, if you will. Having said that, if you're always making hiring decisions based on like, well, before we even interview you, we just want you to take this inventory to figure out where you might fit in. I'm not a huge fan of that. I think that um, I think that puts blinders on your hiring process and it can limit you from finding the right person or maybe finding a better person for the job, you know? So I don't know. I think it could be bad, but it could, it could also be helpful too. I'm kind of, I'm split. I'm torn apart on this question, to be honest. <laughs> I honestly, the, I, I think that your answer perfectly highlights the complexity and the ambiguity of these tests and how they can be used and misused. Um, because on the one hand, you know, it, it brought some personal value to you as you kind of reflected on what your disc profile was. Sure. On the other hand, yeah, if you use them as, as, um, hiring tools without actually sitting down to meet the person, then you are making hiring decisions based off of, you know, at, at best incomplete at worst, um, misleading information. Sure. And there, while there's value to it, it doesn't describe, you know, the be all end all of a, of a person or a personality or a skill set. Yeah. Now, having said that, as I spent time with this company, I really did start to appreciate their perspective on this, um, meeting more people across the country, you know, as a national company. So I'm meeting people across the U.S. basically, and really started to get a feel and kind of at least I was able to come to a place where I was at peace with like, okay, this is how my company thinks. And I can understand that their priority and the way that they use this system as a method to kind of help filter out some of the noise, so to speak. And I, I can appreciate that. And I think they do a really good job. I was actually pretty, pretty damn impressed with this company. But 
Um, and what, what I found was interesting though, is that we also use the disc assessment as, so I was in sales, so we'd use it with our clients. Um, so we'd you and obviously we don't like, we don't give our protect, potential clients like, Hey, can you please fill out this assessment, please? Now, you know, it wasn't like that. It was more like I was trained to be able to analyze people and to have conversations with them to understand what their disc profile might be. You know, you never, as a salesperson, you never say like, oh, I know for sure this person fits this exact profile. It's more like, I think this person fits this profile. And because of that, I'm going to try and frame um, my, my company's position and sell them on our product in a slightly different way. And I actually found a lot of, I mean, it might have been, it's all anecdotal. I certainly wasn't composing a study. There's no data behind this. But I do think it was pretty effective in actually trying to help to understand how to communicate to other people well. So it was kind of interesting that they use it as part of, the company use it as part of the hiring process, but then they also use it internally as a part of like not only understanding their own talent, but also understanding potential clients and how to match and meet with them on this playing ground, if you will. And it it worked reasonably well. Um, I mean, the company is certainly successful. I'm not going to name them, but I mean, you know who I'm talking about, Dave. They're... <laughs> They've been doing this for a long time, and they've been doing it really, really well for an even longer time. So it's um, they're obviously doing something right, but there are definitely some limitations, and you can definitely make mistakes. Like if I assessed, like Dave, if I was trying to sell you, you know, um, some like a service and some product that I could, you know, deliver to you on a truck, if I got if I misjudged you, right, and so I positioned, um, you know, I changed the phrasing of my closing statements and things like that, other technical jargony terms that salespeople like to throw around for some reason. And if I misposition myself, I might miss the opportunity to actually win the deal, basically. You might, it just might not land with you well. You might not receive the information as well as potentially my competitor. Um, so it, it, it was useful. It did make sense. But I just get hung up on the whole idea of like, that it's true or scientific even. Because looking into the science, there is no science behind any of these tests. (laughs) And if there is, it's basically saying like, uh, there's really no correlate, like there's no way to repeat these tests over and over and over and over and over again and get the same answer every time. That's where I've get hung up, basically. And yet there's a reason why these Fortune 500 companies very often employ these things, because science or no, they, they, they work. I'm, I'm not as familiar with DISC, but, but my company is very big into the social style quadrant, which is it's still the same you know, four quadrants as DISC, but it's, it's slightly different. Um, but I, you know, I, I have found that I sort of naturally adapt to people, so I've kind of been doing these things all of my life, but it was so interesting to actually learn about, you know, the difference between somebody who is a, you know, driver versus somebody who's analytical versus expressive. Like I'm, I'm an expressive person and I will make a snap decision. So if you're trying to sell me on something, like get, just get me excited about it and I'll make, you know, I'll make the call right then and there. Yeah. Um, whereas somebody who's analytical, you have to, approach any sort of sales conversation with the knowledge that they're not going to give you an answer right away. And if you make them, they'll say no, which yeah. is weird for me because I don't think that way. <laughs> well. But but kind of understanding that, hey, somebody who's analytical, you've got to present them with the facts and then you got to back off because they have to digest that information and make their decision. 
Yep. And and it's you know, it, it seems like a very simple thing, but but just really kind of studying who somebody is and then kind of approaching it in this way. I mean, I use these things all the time and they work sure. really well. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, and here's also my my question is, okay, do they work really well? Because it's just like a it's a a more detailed framework for under like what we do on a daily basis, which is have an intuition about the people around us, you know, and we it just gives us names and tools and ways to think about that at a deeper level. So all it is is human intuition, just loosely defined in some quasi um, psychology terms, and said, yeah, it's kind of true. Is that what's going on? If it was, would there be anything wrong with that? Oh, <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> no, I don't think. I, there I mean, would be. I yeah. you know, I, I don't think I you know I would be fine if I didn't know the different social style quadrants. But I also am a very intuitive person. A lot of people aren't, you know, um, and it's it's good to be able to to kind of define these social quadrants to really help you understand people. Now, now you're getting into the, you know, the make friends and how to win friends and influence people, <laughs> Machiavellian sort of thing, which I have, you know, very, very mixed feelings about. But um, I don't know. I think there's, there's, a, there's a bad way to approach these things and there's a, there's a positive way to approach these things. But, but we're talking about, you know, DISC is sort of a social style too. Um, but there are other personality types of tests. I think that's the key point. They, all of these things really measure different, different facets of what makes up a quote-unquote personality. Right, um, right. And, and they're just spectrums, right? And we're trying to like define a linear spectrum within something that's anything but, but it's the closest that we can get, you know, with, with words and um, models and frameworks. So while not comprehensive, if you kind of isolate one certain facet of a personality, it does tell you some very interesting things. Like one of my, one of the personality tests I found most useful is the Clifton Strengths Finder test. So basically, you know, has 34 um, different strengths. You take this personality test and then it ranks them, um, you know, 1 to 34 in terms of what what your biggest strengths are. Mm, okay. um, and, you know, it was really, it, it did a number of things for me. Number one, I mean, all these strengths are obviously things that I've identified in my life, but it was nice to be able to put kind of, concrete words to them and to, to have this sort of framework to it. I don't know. It just, it just gives me a little bit more of a firm grounding from which I can kind of expand and build a a better picture understanding of myself. Yeah. And actually I think that's a good point because to bring up, is it more about comprehension of oneself? You know, cause I, obviously I was talking about like from a sales perspective, I need to understand like my client and what, their personality is how to communicate with them. But I also want to make it clear that the company I was working for, they first and foremost said, you need to understand your own disc profile because you need to know what your deficiencies and weakness in communication will be. Right? So like if you're, uh, you know, in disc, well, let's not even get into the details because it's just tedious and boring, but you might be like a highly energetic personality, which is great. That could be a really good thing to build up energy. Certainly going to sell Dave on something because you just got to get him excited about it, you know? But if you are talking to the engineer at the firm and they're the one that you have to sell, 
they don't need energy enthusiasm, just like you astutely pointed out, Dave. So you learning disc, we're also mostly trained in realizing like, okay, I need to change and like really focus on how I'm communicating and communicating in a way that is not typical of me, Ryan, because I'm trying to work with someone who is very analytical and precise. Like I can't win them over with charm. I can't just get them to like me and then get them to sign the paper because of that. Like you said, they have to read the details. They have to do their own analysis and make sure it's right. So I need to change my, I need to change how I approach the situation, not try and influence that person to change the way they think. And I think that's a really key thing to realize is that, or I like, I like the way that you made this point, is that it's really about understanding yourself more so than trying to understand everyone else around you, I think. It, one of the biggest takeaways from the strength finder thing for myself was the things that you are weakest at don't try and fix them. And I've always, you know, until very recently, I've always thought of like, okay, I want to work on my weaknesses instead of developing my strengths. But one of, you know, this test sort of brings up like develop your strengths, the effort multiplier that you get developing your strengths, executing on your strengths will always be higher than trying your, your darndest to get, you know, better your weaknesses. And I've really taken that to heart in terms of, you know, forming teams. I look at strengths all the time because for the most part, for what I do, I don't need another one of me. In fact, it can almost be counterproductive to have somebody with <laughs> my same strengths. Sure. I'm looking for people who can execute really well on the stuff that I'm not good at because mm -hmm. that is so much easier and more efficient than trying to get good at the stuff that you're never going to get good at or that you won't even enjoy getting good at. Sure. Yeah. You know, I am not organized at all and I hate organization. It's the most stressful thing in the world for me. Why would I suffer, try and force myself to be organized when, you know, I could build a team with somebody who really enjoys that part and doesn't enjoy, you know, the strategic kind of, pie in the sky ideation that I have. <laughs> sure. You know, I'll do sure. that part. You do this part. That's, you know, that's sort of building a team, but I don't know if I ever would have gotten there had I not, you know, gone through this kind of assessment and, and seen that assessment or, or use that assessment to understand other people a little bit better. Obviously it's not, you know, like look at their strengths profile. Okay. I know exactly who you are. No, <laughs> right. but I know a little bit about what makes you tick what you like to do versus what you don't mm -hmm. yeah exactly and i think that especially if you're building a team that's 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 instrumental which is funny i always thought that as a especially working in sales that all i was was a team builder the problem is i was just trying to convince two companies that they need to work together and strangely enough in sales it always seems to be the hardest hardest person to sell is your own company i don't know why that is do you run into that ever work-wise <laughs> Uh, I yes, know, I mean, that's a departure, but <laughs> that's the nature of working in large organizations. Um, you know, there's, there's just a lot of bureaucracy, which I, I, think I honestly think that the reason it's the hardest is because it, we don't expect it to be difficult. We expect that to be the easy part. And so we don't put any effort towards it and then it's hard. Mm. Yeah. I always thought it was difficult because I was looking at people who are like, well, why are we changing the way we do business? And it's like, because the market's changing. 
so we need to meet the market. It always felt like that was the battle. Well, I mean, but hey, that's a situational one. But I think that's you know that yeah. might have felt like a little brief tangent, but kind of a good one is that. I mean, at least when it comes to personalities, and if we're talking just the business world or any team, really, m- getting people to be motivated to work together and to really put out their best work, that is really hard to do. And I can see how understanding you know, your team's personality and the dynamic and the mix there from any whatever lens you can look through, whatever knife you can slice that data with, I can see how that'd be really helpful to try and get a team to work better, to be more motivated, to perform at a higher level. That does make sense to me. Okay, so maybe I'm not totally poo-pooing the idea that personality inventories or tests are unscientific gobbledygook. Maybe here's a good way to look at it. I've, I've always loved the, the metaphor of describing something by describing what it isn't. Um, and, and taking a, using the metaphor of a sculptor, you know, a sculptor takes a block and they create art by removing what that sculpture is not. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, describing what a human mind is, is <laughs> impossible at, at this current time. But by taking these different personality tests, you're sort of defining elements of it or chipping away at what you aren't. And, and uh, you, you know, you use the word triangulate, which I think kind of perfectly describes trying to understand yourself. I don't know if you ever get there. Some people maybe, um, but you get more and more in tune with yourself by just, you know, slowly, slowly triangulating more and more of who you are in terms mm-hmm. of just, you know, understanding who you are. Yeah, which is, it's interesting because I like how you brought up, um, you know, the artificial intelligence from the get-go because you know, all of us, we have so many, so much information displayed to us in a catered fashion. You know, like all of the ads that we see online are targeted to us in our IP address, right? And, you know, if you use Spotify or YouTube or any any media service, they're gathering a lot of data on you and then cultivating and curating what to present to you next so that they, that they can keep you there. And it's almost like those two ideas, you know, the whole... I mean, again, we're not there, but the whole idea of artificial intelligence and using that in the media services business is very, very similar to how big big business uses personality typology, or not typology, personality traits to like build better teams. They're really not too far from each other if you look at it through a, a rose-colored lens, at least. You know, if, if, we, t- if we take this away from the employee kind of sure uh, mm-hmm. quadrant and more into like a marketing you know the, the the consumer right yeah i mean you and i both have experience with you know being marketed to uh or catered to via algorithms i think a you know great great example of this would be you know the spotify discover weekly um curated playlist algorithms oh yeah you know, those mm-hmm. are and you could probably talk a little bit more about you know what how that algorithm works, but you know, you and I both have discovered some pretty amazing music because those algorithms that, you know, they, they, they've really, they've really hit some home runs for me that I don't think a lot of other people would, you know, you know, speaking of music, right. I, you know, 
you have always been my personal music algorithm before Spotify. <laughs> you know, you and I know each other very well. Um, you you were in the you know the the music world for a long time, um, and just you know ha- listened to and had much more exposure to a lot of different music. And yeah. you would send things my way, and you'd say, "Dave, you would you're really going to like this." And I would listen to it, and I, nine times out of ten, I wouldn't like it right away. But I knew, okay, hang on, there's a reason that Ryan sent this to me. He <laughs> knows me pretty well. He knows my musical taste. Yep. And sure enough, you know, a couple listens in the some of my favorite records that I have been listening to for, you know, decades now (laughs) you sent my way. (laughs) Um, yeah, but Spotify kind of does something similar. Well, yeah, I mean, and so I don't know a ton about how Spotify actually does it. Although there is a fascinating article, um, on Spotify design, I think where they basically talk about the process they go through in terms of creating the algorithms because they don't, they don't just tell the computers what to do. They actually manually will go through the algorithms like by hand, basically, um, to make sure that it's actually producing something like the end result that they're looking for before they actually do any coding, before they do any programming, um, which is really an interesting way because they have a very... Um, it's easy to get carried away with um, neural networks and processing algorithms that uh, imitate what artificial intelligence might be someday. And just be like, yeah, it'll work. It'll be great. But it might end up giving you just a pile of feces at the end. You know, it might be fancy, but it still <laughs> isn't very useful, right? Um, yeah. And so I think they've they've cracked the code on basically every song in Spotify's library has just gobs of data attached to it. Metadata, basically. How energetic is the song? Uh, what's the BPM? What's the key? Uh, is this, you know, like, what is the mood of the song? I mean, there's so many little data tags that they have on every piece of music or podcast, whatever. So that as you, as a user, you just listen to different songs and stuff. Basically, it's Spotify is tracking everything you listen to, which isn't really a surprise. I don't think anyone's like, oh my goodness, I didn't know Spotify was doing that. But because of that, your profile has all this data associated with it. And if they run it through a series of algorithms, they can be like, you know, I bet, based on the fact that this person likes reggae, let's say, and gets into rock and roll every now and then, like, hey, this new Jim Cotta album just came out, that might fit the bill for this this person, and they'll float one of the singles from the album into your Discover Weekly. That's, in general, mm-hmm. kind of what's going on there. And, I mean, the key is just data. The more data you get, the more accurate you can be. Um, I think we talked about this on the Music and Artificial Intelligence cast, but... Uh, I recently, uh, about a year ago, I should say, started a new Spotify account. So a completely blank profile, basically. There's no data gathered on me. And I was kind of curious, like, how long would it take before it starts curating music for me? And by it, I mean Spotify. Before Spotify actually starts curating music for me where I'm like, yeah, this is like, you know, 80% of this stuff I'm actually enjoying. And it really took uh, a month, maybe. (laughs) It was not long. You know, it's amazing how quickly... Spotify was able to be like, yeah. oh yeah, I, we can we can feed this user some music. It'll be fine. It works pretty well. You know, as you're as you're saying that, I was I was thinking. Um, so I oversimplification, but an algorithm is basically compiling data on a user and then 
taking that data to define a future um, product or service or whatever for them that they're going to like. And it, and it works. But I wonder if it works for the right reasons or the wrong reasons. Yeah. And mm-hmm. what the danger is of of using the definition and and you know ascribing causation when it's really correlation. So here's an example and maybe a bad one but but get, gets my point across a little bit. So let's say that um Spotify says, "Hey, you know, Dave tends to listen to songs at 115 BPM um and prefers, you know, uh chord structures with, you know, uh, this is where my theory is going <laughs> to multiple, you know, minor chords within a key, so something like that. Mm-hmm. And so it gives me more songs like that and I really enjoy them. And so the algorithm, you know, keeps going. So if you were to look at the, you know, the nuts and bolts behind that data and the decision, you would say, oh, Dave likes, you know, 110 BPM with, you know, chords with, you know, this X percentage of, of minor progression. But what if, there are there's something else that's really what's triggering my brain to like these songs that just happens to correlate to the bpm and the and the key right but it's something entirely different i don't i don't really like the song because of the speed or the the feel i like it because i don't know i love trumpet music <laughs> <laughs> right yeah um got a sick trumpet track so, on it so so yeah. okay uh-huh you know and for, for the spotify algorithm who cares you know it like it doesn't really matter if the reason's right. If it works, it works. However, when we start to look at the at the data, and then I don't know, does it does it ever get to a point where that becomes dangerous? Because we're operating on something that works, but we're not we're not we don't really understand the true reason for why it works. Does that make any sense? That seemed very poorly worded. <laughs> You're a little roundabout, I think. Yeah. Um... Okay, so if I'm understanding you, what you're saying is that there might be like a feedback loop that's generated that isn't actually giving positive results. Like it's just getting lucky, right? In this case, we're talking about a Spotify music algorithm designed for Dave, and it just happens to be getting a couple songs right. Um, even though the algorithm itself that Spotify is using isn't actually going to increase the likelihood of you finding more music that you like. Is that kind of what you're saying? Like it's a. Uh, we think it's working, and there's proof that it's working, but then again, it's the only thing we're doing, so why wouldn't it be working? Exactly. It's basing that decision off of something that actually isn't related at all, but it's correlated to what I really like. Right, and with music, uh, cultivating a music taste, that's not really like, it's not all that bad in the world, but if you're, um, let's say, using an artificial intelligence algorithm to sift through college admission exams... Uh, essays or for your ability to join company XYZ, whatever, then all of a sudden, like you're really starting to change people's lives on a, on a different level that I think is, I don't want to say frightening because I think the future can always be frightening, but it's different, a little unsettling maybe. Do you think that our lives will be decided by algorithms in the future? <laughs> 